The Psychedologist. Dr. Adele LaFrance, researcher and therapist, comes on the show to discuss treating eating disorders with psychedelics, how eating disorders are more about fear than control, creating a kind and loving container, family involvement in recovery, intergenerational healing, supporting people with marginalized identities, and love. Adele is a clinical psychologist, research scientist, author, and co-developer of emotion-focused treatment modalities, including emotion-focused family therapy. Her latest book, What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, is a neuroscience-informed effort to help parents support their kids. With colleagues, she also makes a wealth of caregiving resources available at no cost at mental health foundations. Adele is also a leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine with a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Currently, she is the clinical investigator and strategy lead for the MAP-sponsored MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study for eating disorders and a collaborator clinical support on the Empirical College study for psilocybin and anorexia nervosa. She is a founding member of the LOVE Project. Adele has a particular interest in mechanisms and modes of healing, including emotion processing, spirituality, and family-based psychedelic psychotherapy. She is a frequent contributor in the media relating to emotion, health, and the science of psychedelics. I am a wicked big fan of Adele's, and I've been waiting for this conversation to happen for a long time. And it was great to uh, get to come out and share some more of my personal history with eating disorders, relationship to my body. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and uh, thank you for listening. So I'll drop us in with a little um, invocation. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just coming into our bodies and arriving in the seat, in the room, bringing everything that wants to be here online to, to inform and guide our conversation. Thank you to our teachers and our guides and helpers and family and friends and loved ones, the ones who love us. Um, And thank you to the earth and the planets and the sun and the cosmos for us to be incarnate in this brief moment in the multiverse and to experience all the pain and pleasure and what it is to be human and hopefully to leave things a little bit better than we found them. I invite you to say anything if anything arises and if not, okay, you can start anytime. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. I appreciate that. Trying to make that part of the, more part of the, the beginning that a rush into it be very patriarchal <laughs> yeah no it's important and I, I really appreciate you kind of acknowledging the mentors and the healers you know I feel like that's an, it's, it's important to kind of um as a way of passing down the teachings and the healing that's front of mind you know to acknowledge where we come from and who mm-hmm. supported us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
Oh, welcome to The Psychedologist, Adele. Thank you. It's so great to be here. <laughs> we finally did it. Yes. Oh, I've always been watching your episodes with great interests, and I love what you're doing. It's fantastic. Oh, I love what you're doing. I've been watching what you're doing with great interest. <laughs> now we get to talk about all the things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, so I'd, I'd love to, um, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about, you know, what's like, what's up in psychedelic therapy and eating disorders right now? Mm -hmm. Because I know it's, it's quite a pervasive issue. I mean, I even think there's a lot of undiagnosed eating disorders in society. And the, mm -hmm. one of my, one of my teachers, Sonia Renee Taylor coined the term, the body shame profit complex, where yes. it's like, yeah, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a whole industry, you know, billions of dollars in that um, perpetuating body shame so that we buy things to maybe, maybe make us feel better. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what, where are things headed for, for eating disorder, body dysmorphia, psychedelic treatments? And is it, is there the risk that psychedelics could be billed as like a magic pill for um, mm. the more meaningful change? Yeah, no, thank you for those questions and for bringing attention to this topic, because historically eating disorders have been quite underfunded, especially in contrast to um, how it impacts people's quality of life, the mortality rates associated with these illnesses, you know, the effect on the system in which they find themselves, as well as the costs in terms of healthcare, you know, and so uh, I'm really, really excited about the potential of psychedelic medicine for eating disorders. I don't believe it's going to be a magic pill, but I do believe it's going to open the door towards a journey of health and wellness for many, many people who wouldn't otherwise have that opportunity. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in terms of stigma and access, um, ethics for this particular uh, clinical population, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but, you know, the wheels are turning. So there are a number of studies that are um, in progress. Um, you know, one with MAPS that I'm the strategy lead on, one at Imperial College, uh, Meg Spriggs is leading that. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman who's so passionate about this. And they're looking at psilocybin. And then we have the group at John Hopkins, who's also looking at psilocybin for AN. And then there are a few other groups that are coming up. I know that at um, University of California, Walter Kay and Stephanie Natz are also gearing up to start enrolling patients for an anorexia trial. So there's a lot of there's a lot going on. I just finished a study with ketamine for anorexia nervosa, and that was really exciting. So we have a lot to learn. You know, these early stages have been, we've been, we've been working together, thankfully, most of us, you know, across these centers, which has been really, really remarkable and maybe a departure in terms of how things usually happen, but it's been great. We've had like a few meetings kind of sharing ideas, sharing measures, uh, sharing resources, and we're all, looks like we're all going to start ramping up our studies. So we're learning, 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 you know, and most of our studies are just about learning so that we can figure out like how best to serve these people. Do you have an intuition about how best to serve these people? Um, I do. <laughs> I do. I don't know that I'm right. So, you know, it'll be one of those things where five years from now, we'll be looking back and, and kind of enjoying the conversations in a new way. 
I have a few kind of firm beliefs about it. I feel like the prep work is going to be really, really important and that the focus of the psychedelic psychotherapy is going to be really important because there are a subset of individuals with eating disorders who are not ready to consider weight gain, but who would like to experience relief from um, perfectionistic tendencies or anxiety or depressive episodes. And so I think that uh, really, really important informed process of consent will be necessary to determine what the treatment goals are, what's possible, what's not possible, what's what's potential. Um, I also believe that um, really good a really good container will be important. People with eating disorders, you know, oftentimes people use the word control, like ah, oh, it's a it's a disorder of control. That's one of the words that really irks me, yeah. because in our culture. The idea of being controlled or controlling, it's never a positive thing. You know, like you don't go like, oh, someone said I was controlling. I feel really good about myself. You know, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think especially women get told it's bad to be controlling. If a man's controlling, he's assertive. He's a good leader. Leader. Yeah, right. And so I really don't use that word at all. And in fact, it's not accurate. It's not accurate because what's really going on is that there's fear. And so women who have eating disorders, in my clinical experiences, I've noted they have tremendous fear. They might have fear of hurting others. They might have fear of disappointing others. They might have fear of anger or fear of the experience of shame or other affective or physiological experiences. But but for me, as a blanket statement, these are disorders that are based in fear. And so people who are scared need a really tight, loving container before they're going to take a consciousness altering substances that will make it so that they're less in control of their mind and of their body. So that's another piece. And then, I mean, there's so many more, I'll just say one more for now. Uh, I really believe in the importance of supportive uh, family involvement. Um, Eating disorders affect all members of the family because they tend to be chronic illnesses, any chronic illness, whether it be uh, physical or the mental health variety is gonna have an impact on the system. And family members as a result of that impact on the system can inadvertently end up in roles where they maintain illness, you know, doing their best, but also coming from a place of not wanting to, you know, worse things to happen, they might engage in ways that are less helpful. Or they might just be really, really desperate to figure out ways that they can help. And I've never met a mom or a dad um, or a primary caregiver of a person with an eating disorder who did not have a narrative of self-blame. And so for that reason, I really do believe that it's important to somehow include a supportive other, both to help create a recovery-friendly environment in the home, but also to bring healing to the system. because mental health issues, not just eating disorders, affect everyone. So that the idea that just one person, you know, needs treatment is, doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm having so many thoughts right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I've certainly seen that when one person in a family goes through a psychedelic journey, that it ripples out and, and everyone is affected in different ways. 
um, especially partners. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is so true. Um, and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the alcoholism there's been in my family and then like how my grandmother got to Al-Anon and then Al-Anon really helped her. Mm. Like the, she, she actually sponsored like hundreds of people once oh. she joined Al-Anon. Yeah. Like your Nana? My Nana. Yeah. The one oh, I've been telling you about. Yeah. And she was a real, they, they called her a bossy Gillis. It's like an old, I learned so many old words from her. She's a very bossy person. And uh, her her famous story is like the first time she went to Al-Anon, she sat there in the meeting and twiddled all her thumbs. And, and then she said to the lady next to her, when are they going to tell me how to get my husband to quit drinking? <laughs> and the lady said, well, you're not here for him, sweetheart. You're here for you. Mm. And, and that was just the beginning of, you know, like she couldn't <sighs> change his behavior and like, how could she take care of herself um, and, and yeah, yeah, not, not take it upon herself as blame or whatever to change. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking well, about, about that. Yeah. And what you said, I think really strikes a chord for me when you're like, you know, when you come home from a psychedelic experience, it can cause ripple effects. And, uh, I did the Hoffman process a few years ago. It's a week long residential retreat and it's, group psychotherapy. It's very experiential. It's very motion focused. I really appreciate it. It was really great. What I liked most about what they did and what I've kind of brought over to my work with uh, psychedelic psychotherapy is that they had forms to give to your significant other, you know, whether it be like a partner or a good friend or a parent to say like, these things could happen and these things could happen. And that's one thing I feel like is lacking at this time in the context of, um, uh, maybe ayahuasca retreats or other types of retreats is that um, sometimes people will have these peak experiences that they'll experience themselves differently um, or they'll really realize that things need to be different in the relationship. And then they go home and try to enact that change. But the other person hasn't had that benefit of moving through a process. And so it can be very, very jarring. And if, if the other responses with defensiveness, uh, you know, we could make the erroneous conclusion that they're not ready. They're not supportive. They're not wanting to, you know, redefine some of those unconscious contracts when in reality um, there just needs to be a bit more time or care in terms of how we navigate those spaces. And I know I've seen that a number of times people coming back from ayahuasca retreats in particular and be like, ah, I can't talk to my parents anymore. They don't get it. They're, you know, they're to this, to that. And, the, and I think that with some careful and directive work, we could actually help some of those people um, get to a better place in relationship. But yeah, so there's, I think there's a lot of work that can be done there to enhance those processes in a good way. Definitely. And like the partner, mm-hmm. you know, whatever's being brought up for the partner is very real and also deserves support and time. And, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're all in this together. Is there anything else we should say about eating disorders before? I feel like this is a good segue into family-based medicine, but. um... Yeah. I just think that, you know, different eating disorders might help different or different psychedelics rather, or or consciousness altering substances might be able to help in different ways. You know, I often am asked the question about like, which one do you think will work best? And it's not until recently that I feel like I've, kind of figured it out, you know, a a good enough answer for now. And I think that I I think that MDMA is going to be 
probably the most powerful gateway um, because of what I talked about in terms of that, that those deep fear responses, fear of the world, fear of others, fear of the self, fear of the inner world. And so I think MDMA will kind of um, be, it would be a gentler and powerful nonetheless, you know, introduction to the world of, um, of consciousness altering substances to then move on to the classic psychedelics, which I think will have more impact in terms of brain change with those um, stuck patterns. So I think that, I think that those two classes, um, but I, you know, ketamine, I thought was really wonderful. You know, in the study that we just completed, it was, it was not just ketamine. It was ketamine plus really intensive and very specific psychotherapy for eating disorders. Please but it let's of, have therapy with the ketamine. Like oh I can't believe God. this. No, no. Like seriously. And what, in fact, what we found, and this isn't, this isn't published yet, but it's an exciting finding is we actually had them complete the emotional breakthrough inventory, which is a psychedelic measure after the psychotherapy. And, um, I shared the results with Robin Carhart Harris from, from the UK. And I'm like, how do these compare, you know, to your psilocybin studies? And it was amazing. It was similar means to how one would rate the EBI after a 20 milligram psilocybin session. And so a wow. 90 minute psychotherapy post ketamine was deemed as powerful as a powerful psychedelic experience by some of our patients, which I thought was really remarkable. And so when I think about ketamine, I don't think about it as a solo substance. I think about it as a substance that needs to be paired with really good psychotherapy. Yeah, completely agree. And then the aftercare, right? Like, especially to, mm -hmm. to harness the, um, the neuroplasticity of the brain following that with the, the glutamate, you know, fertilizer for the neurons, like what, are, that's exactly. what I always tell people after they do ketamine. I'm like, what are the best habits that you want to cultivate and like let's lean into those right now that's right exactly and that's why we that's why we timed the psychotherapy within that zone mm. so that we could benefit from those brain processes you know maximally so i i couldn't agree more you know giving them homework you know like what you just said to kind of really take advantage of it and some people think that that theory is kind of still um unfounded but I don't know. I'm, I'm convinced by the, by the data that I've seen so far. Mm, yeah. And I'd like to add to your repository that informs what psychedelics are good just from my own experience. Yeah. Um, part of my, so my eating disorder was like anorexia early on in my life. And then I got to this point where I couldn't, it's like, I couldn't restrict to my satisfaction. And that's when I became yeah. bulimic. And then the bulimia was like, really uh part of my life for uh like half my life uh, which i just can't believe um mm -hmm. and it's like i i aspire thank you yeah i'm so sorry I yeah it's hard it was and i didn't yeah and part part of the i'm just like reflecting now on like the secrecy because i didn't want anyone to know and um uh but anyway what, what was i going to say Oh, I was aspiring to be bulimic before I could even figure out how to be. Like it was just in my consciousness from so mm -hmm. young. Um, but then when I took, so there were two two things that happened. When I took LSD, I would always feel like the body dysmorphia kind of went away for a couple wow. hours. And it was, it was wow. Like uh, I just remember sitting and staring at myself and 
like how how could it be I don't hate myself right now? I don't hate my body. It was weird. Uh, so that LSD is always my go-to now for embodiment. Like the body dysmorphia has gotten a lot better. Uh, definitely other trauma healing helped with that. But um, mm-hmm. so for experiential embodiment, I thought LSD was good and, and maybe could be good for other people with uh, body dysmorphia. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, those classics are really beautiful in terms of helping to reorganize, you know, the way we see ourselves, the world, others. Yeah. Yeah, reorganized, definitely. And then I had a psilocybin journey in the very early days of psychedelics coming into my life where it was like once in a while, I feel like the psychedelics talk to me and they're like, okay, get up and go over to this part of the room. It's like a very clear, not coming from like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know where I'm going. Okay, I'll go. Like, why am I going? And it brought me over to the mirror and it was like, let your belly go. Just like, let your belly be round. And and it was this big fight. Like, oh, I don't want to. It doesn't feel good. I hate it. And the mushrooms were like, girl, like, you're not going to heal until you let your belly go. Like, that's how you'll be the most powerful and soft and everything you want to be. It's right there in letting that go. So then that became like homework and integration of like finding wow. safe space to let it go. Yeah. Mm, that's so beautiful and so hard in our culture you know, so hard in our culture to kind of allow and even recognize the beauty of our bodies. Yeah. And then that led me back to childhood. I was kind of averse to, like, I didn't want childhood pictures around me really. And and, and then in the last year I have wanted them. And it led me back to looking at baby pictures and seeing you know, like I've had a round belly since I was a baby. Like I just have a round belly, you know, yeah. trying to like, oh, it's so cute. Trying to see it as cute and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And my partner loves my belly. You know, he, he like oh. wants it to be bigger. He's like, let's get that belly bigger. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that, and then the remembering childhood and all of that. So I just wanted to, to share that about my journey. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so important. And whether people have an eating disorder, disordered eating or not, you know, we could all use a little bit more loving on our bodies, you know, in terms of how we treat them, how we, how we observe them, uh, how we hold them, how we share them, you know? So I think it's just such a powerful message across the board, you know, in our culture. Definitely. Yeah. And how we share them or don't share them. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. How we share them if we choose to from a good place. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we talk about love now? I feel like we're heading in the love direction now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It might be my favorite topic right now. You know, it's funny because I'm a twice divorced person. So it's kind of like ironic. You know, one of my girlfriends was like, don't you feel weird talking about love in the context of your research or whatever? And like, you just got divorced again. I'm like, I don't know. To me, they feel really separate. You know, they really do. But and I'm also not going to give it up. You know, I'm not going to give up on when I talk about love. I'm not just talking about romantic love. In fact, most of the time I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about universal love the love that we feel um, among us as, you know, citizens of this planet. Um, And it's been really curious that I started, I just had this, like, it was actually during a ceremony. I had this revelation or this like instruction was with ayahuasca 
um, you need to bring love more into psychotherapy in an explicit manner in psychedelic psychotherapy. You are a love warrior. I was like, what? Oh my gosh, <laughs> sounds crazy, you know? <laughs> Jeez. Um, okay. But it was really profound, actually, you know? And, and I realized in that altered state that most of the work we do with psychedelics, and, you know, I have mentors and colleagues who have echoed this, which has made me kind of feel more reassured by the stance, but most of it is like coming back to love or clearing the blocks to love, whether it's self-love or love of our, you know, fellow humans or uh, in connection with spirit or spirituality. And yet nobody talks about the L word in research. And when I started asking people, like I emailed a whole bunch of, you know, colleagues in the space and I'm like, guys, Else, why aren't we talking about love? Like, what's going on? I got some really interesting responses. You know, Bill Richards wrote a really neat response about, you know, like the many definitions of love. And then um, I think it was Rick Doblin talked about, you know, like how we have to be careful about the ethics related to the use of that word. All excellent points, very valid, you know. And so I started thinking about like spirituality because. I don't know, about five years ago, seven years ago, I think that's when lots of the research around psychedelics and spirituality was emerging. I remember hearing those very same questions. I was on a panel at a conference in Canada and was like, oh, it's hard to define. It's hard to do this, hard to do that. Well, we figured it out. And now the research is showing that, you know, spirituality is a big deal and that Mm -hmm. it correlates to positive outcomes. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like we need to do the same for love. Like, yes, hard to define. Yes, we can figure it out. And so I'm working right now on developing a measurement tool for the experiences of love in psychedelic psychotherapy that I'm really hoping that our colleagues will adopt so that we can have a more central view of the healing power of this incredible technology. Wow, I'm getting so much warmth through me, like waves of warmth as I hear you talk about that. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, a, so my partner or whatever we are, um, he got me into bell hooks. She's a black feminist, amazing teacher, writer, and she has a book called all about love. And it's kind of like a radical black feminist look and, uh, at, at love and what love is. And it's like love in families and love in relationships and love in work. And, Mm -hmm. um, the book starts out with a quote. She, she said, I like this quote by Scott Peck's, um, which is, love is nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. It's the will to nurture one's own or another's spiritual growth. And so love is like an action. Um, And it's, I think, I think it's a feeling too. It's like, sometimes I talk about love and it's a feeling. I'm sure your measure will capture people's encounters with that feeling. Um, But then, yeah, it's informed myself in in relationship a lot. Like Mm -hmm. how, like, am I nurturing my spiritual growth right now? Like, is what I'm calling love for my partner actually nurturing his growth as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a spiritual mm-hmm. being? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an interesting lens. I don't know if that can come into play at all. Oh, I know. I think that's really beautiful. I think it really is beautiful. And it, it's going to be important for us to kind of think about all these definitions. And one definition that I'm particularly interested in is the love felt from therapist or sitter or facilitator to the participant, you know? 
um, because in psychotherapy for eons now, we've been referring to it as an unconditional positive regard. Mm-hmm. But if we really think about what that is, unconditional positive regard, I mean, that's love. And I've I've spoken to individuals who participated in psychedelic assisted psychotherapies, and they've talked about when they were able to connect with the feeling of love from the therapist, how important that was, you know, how beautiful that was, how healing that was, how scary it was at times. Um, and so I I would really love for our field to be in a place, a mature enough place where we can acknowledge that we as therapists love our clients in a way that is safe, ethical, boundaried, and uh, reflecting this notion of universality, like universal love. Um, Not a lot of people feel enough love for whatever reason. I mean, socially, we have all kinds of barriers around intimacy and vulnerability. Um, And then when we get hurt, you know, trauma shuts off our ability to give and receive love. And so if, if therapists can convey unconditional positive regard in a way that's perhaps more explicit, um, I don't know, I think it could go a long way to, to healing more people. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. And I think that the therapists themselves need to be set up to be able to love because we have, we have the barriers too. Totally. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I did a, I, I was doing a little group supervision recently and it was a group of um, men and women. And I asked them, how do you convey love to your clients? And um, how far are you willing to go in terms of your verbal expressions? And, um, you know, there, there, there did seem to be a gender difference where, the men in the room in this particular setup were like, yeah, no, we're scared because we don't want to give the wrong impression, both because we don't want to hurt the other, but we also don't want to have our words misconstrued in terms of intentionality and then get in trouble like with our our college or regulatory body. And um, so we were just brainstorming ways that we could bring love more explicitly into that space, but in a manner that was clearer, you know, more contained. Or, but the other p- the piece that you mentioned is like, I really do think it's it's uh, vital for therapists to be in a continuous process of self-exploration and healing um, to do this work, especially with consciousness altering substances, because when our clients are altered, they are picking up on things that they would not normally pick up on in, in another psychotherapy setting. And um, I think it's really, really important, A, for the therapist to be as aligned as possible when we compare their life outside of the therapy office and inside of the therapy office, as well as uh, comfortable to address um, any potential transference or even countertransference you know, that might be occurring in the space in a way that's, um, in a way that's skillful, respectful, um, productive. Yeah. Hmm, well, I look forward to seeing what you come up with there. We need it. We need the yeah. 
Oh, yeah, we need the love. It's true. Like if you think about your last like really powerful experience, you know, was there a theme of love? And if not, that's fine. But I think for most of us, you know, love was central. Even Michael Pollan in his book, he kind of like talks about how love was everything, but he's like kind of, kind of like, um, what's the word? Like anxious about it. He's like, oh, this feels so banal, you know, saying this, it's so cliche. Love is everything, you know? So there's, there's that, that feeling of like shame around this notion that, oh, oh my gosh, love is everything. And I, you know, I'm not really clear why that is. Mm, yeah. Well, something I was thinking a moment ago, it doesn't respond to the point you just made as much, but I think people have been told this is your, like, I'm loving you. Like, I'm just like thinking of um, overbearing parents, like, no, I'm, I'm restricting you because I love you. And so there's right. conflict there about like what it really is because people can abuse people in the name of love. That's that right. happens all the time. That's right. In fact, therapists have done it too. You know, let's, let's not, uh, let's not forget about the the sketchy history that we have and continue to have where um, even in, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy studies, there's been, you know, a recent case of uh, a therapist who had sexual relations with a, a client or former client. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, ah, we need to be bringing love into the space in a better way. On the other hand, it's like, we have some cleanup to do in aisle five because there have been many people who have been hurt and abused, you know, in the name of love, as you say. So it is important to recognize that and to validate people's anxieties about using the L word for that very reason. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a gender aspect as well to this like right even in your group the men were more um had more pause about doing that I understand that Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah it's a it it is funny that like I'm friends with Catherine McLean and the the mystical experience I was kind of like she helped create the mystical experience questionnaire and Mm -hmm. and you're working on this one and they are very interrelated and and yes there's a lot of baggage right like spiritual bypassing is some of the baggage and in this case, like, uh, you know, like love has to include consent, I think. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, um, and to that point, you know, spirituality and love having a lot of overlap. That's one of the first responses that I had, like, oh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's embedded, you know, in spirituality or in mystical experiences. But then, you know, there are a lot of people who, who would, who would not report having had spiritual experiences but who would report having had really deep powerful experiences of love felt towards family members or their children or something like that um but yeah love like to your point about consent it's like that's embedded um it's yeah it's it's embedded when it's a when it's communicated in words and action um and also it can it can be an energy just an energy of presence an energy of curiosity, um, of compassion, you know, especially when I think about from the therapist to the, to the client, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I think more and more people are open to the conversation and to the idea and particularly bring it more into science. I'm doing a presentation tomorrow for Imperial college about 
psychedelic psychotherapy, how it can be a pathway towards revitalizing the concept of love. You know, when we, when it gets into therapy, when it gets into science, you know, people listen in a different way. So I'm like going to be hoping and praying that, that uh, they adopt some of these strategies to do so. Mm-hmm. I'm so into experiential and like somatic things at this moment oh. in my career. And like, I wonder if there could be a little experiential like meditation or something like think about something that symbolizes love to you. And like, how does that mm-hmm. feel in the body? You know, mm-hmm. that would be beautiful. And, I, and that makes me think of like, um, feel the love in the space between, you know, how would you describe it? What color or shape does it take, you know, to kind of, and then, and actually that would be a really great idea to feel it in self and in between, because then they could really start to define what love means, you know, like, oh, it's, res- it's mutual respect, it's curiosity, it's patience, it's presence, as opposed to um, entanglement with notions of um, sex, for example, you know, or romance. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So should we talk about family medicine a little bit? Family-based yeah. medicine? Yeah. There's some love yeah. in there too. Oh, tons of love in there. Yeah. Well, I guess the first, I, I was trained as a family therapist first, and then I ended up developing a family therapy model. Um, so family work has been a huge part of my life and career. And then just just wrote a, a parenting book, you know, and the more I worked with parents in particular, or, you know, primary caregivers, the more I've gotten to know their suffering, you know, when their child is, is unwell. And sometimes their suffering comes out as defensiveness or as criticism or as other blame. Sometimes it comes out as hopelessness or helplessness um, or shame. But it's always there. It's always there. and. I found that um, when we can support parents and and primary caregivers to move through their fears, to move through their shame, their self-blame, they're better able to access their caregiving instincts and they're better able to be the kind of parents they want to be and the kind of parents their children want them to be. And um, so when I was working with eating disorders in particular, there were a number of families who just were not responding to the treatment that we had to offer through no one's fault. I mean, everyone was doing their best, you know, it just wasn't working. And my sense was it's because their fears were really, really powerful that the fears weren't, were just not being touched, you know, by the kind of therapy that we had to offer. Mm-hmm. And so um, I ended up running into this woman who ended up going to an ayahuasca retreat who had, who had done some clinical work with me through the years it was amazing. She heard about ayahuasca through someone else. It wasn't even me. And she talked about how she she went down to do this retreat on behalf of her daughter so that she could figure out how to help her. Mm-hmm. Her daughter wasn't medically stable enough to do ayahuasca. And I don't even think she had any interest. Um, and so her mom went and she said that she was basically provided with a clear formula on what she needed to do in order to support her daughter best through her experience of, you know, recovery. Um, and then she also got her own healing big time. 
you know, because it's traumatic as a parent to have a child with a life-threatening issue for chronic and chronic over years, you know, with her, her organs are being affected. And so it really, really got me interested in the potential of surrogate healing. Mm -hmm. Um, So when individuals are too afraid to engage with psychedelic substances as medicines, or there are contraindications, either they're on psychopharmacological medication, or they have a history of a mental disorder that would increase the risk beyond what would be reasonable. Um, There is this possibility that one of their close others could do some healing on their behalf collectively, you know? It does raise issues, though, important issues about consent. Um, you know, no one should be should feel forced or even pressured to take a consciousness-altering substance, especially on someone else's behalf. But I have observed some really beautiful stories of, of hope and healing. And so that's one model. But there are others, you know, in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study with MAPS that I that I wrote the protocol for, you know, in, in concert with many colleagues, um, we formally integrated a support person, a family member into the protocol. And so they participate for the first prep session, and then they participate in at least one of the integration sessions, um, as well as the closing session. So, and they're offered um, one-on-one support as well throughout the protocol. And I know that uh, Imperial College is doing the same thing. So I'm really, really excited about that because it will bring healing to more than just the affected individual. And that's what we did with the ketamine study. Uh, We had a a support person. It was in our study, it was either a spouse or partner, a parent or an adult sibling. And they participated in the prep session. They were able to sit in on some of the ketamine sessions to provide support if if needed. Um, They had their own separate sessions to, to learn advanced communication strategies to support emotionally and they were there for the closing session and in almost every single case they talked about how absolutely impactful it was for their own healing and growth so i just i really strongly believe in that model and then of course there's the final piece where you could dose people together um and i'm i think that maps is going to be turning towards a study looking at um dyadic medicine uh, for family therapy and I, you know, I really, I'm excited about that possibility. Is that for a person with PTSD, then their partner would also be able to receive MDMA or is it other things besides PTSD? Yeah, it could be other things. You know, I just know that they're talking about like having to uh, determine the safety and feasibility of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for in a pediatric population. And I think that could be a really cool way of, um, of conducting that study is actually in the context of a, of a dyad where both members, you know, it could be an eating disorder. It could be PTSD. You know, I know Ann Wagner is doing this amazing research with couples uh, where one of them is, has been diagnosed with PTSD. And so I really, really admire, you know, what she's doing um, in the field, you know, look at these more systemic healing processes. Yeah, I think, uh, clinically, it makes a lot of sense. And then I'm, I'm remembering, I wish I could remember where I learned this, but I'm remembering that um, in like peyote traditions, if someone in the community was sick, uh, everyone else will get together and eat peyote on behalf of their healing. So it's like, it's in, you know, 
in shamanic and indigenous culture, there is that as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that's so beautiful. Yeah. I one of a number of my friends just did a sweat lodge, you know, for for a family member or friend who was who was uh, in a really difficult place, you know, health wise. And I think it's just a beautiful way of bringing community back together. Yeah, learning from those traditions. Yeah, yeah. The something that has been impactful for me as a healer is building my capacity to sit with someone else's pain and not try to fix it and just like compassionately witness it. And yeah. and if if there's a fix I can do, like I know I'm going to do that. But sometimes there is no fix that I can do. And mm-hmm. um, you know, my part of my eating disorder journey was like my grandmother is very fat phobic. She was always saying fat phobic things when I was little. Uh, and actually my whole life, <laughs> like she still says them. Um, and one day I was just super triggered by it. Actually first she had been talking shit about weed. Like there's like a cannabis ad in the newspaper. She was like, why do they have that? People abuse that. They shouldn't have it in the paper. And I was just like, you are so judgmental. Like, like for the first time in my life, I like kind of went off on her. I was like, what do you even know? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then later there was a fat phobic comment and it just like, threw me off a cliff. My mom was over and I was like, Nana's a bitch. I, like, she's such a bitch. And I was like losing <laughs> my mind. And my mom was like, but what about this? Like, would you think about this? Would you think about that? And I was like, I don't want your solution. Like, I'm just angry. Yeah. And it was a huge breakthrough yes. for us. And, and she, after it, she was like, wow, I'd never thought about it that I was so uncomfortable that you were mad at Nana. So I was trying to give you a solution to not be mm. angry and I just needed to let you be angry. And this was like a huge breakthrough for us. No, it's, it is huge. Like in our culture, we are conditioned to do one of two things when someone has pain, reassure or problem solve. Yeah. And if we, and that's part of the advanced communication strategies that we teach the caregiver, like the support people, we teach them first validate, then support. Yeah. And we give them the formula. I can understand why you'd feel angry because one, because two, because three, and then you can offer them reassurance or comfort or, you know, suggest a problem solving solution. But that tiny little strategy has made such a difference, you know, because it's true. Like everyone is conditioned to try to like, just make us stop feeling. And unfortunately that perpetuates the problem. And that's exactly the opposite of what psychedelics help us to do. They help us to feel to completion. Turns out that's really one of the most fundamental ways of healing and growing is to feeling all our feelings to completion. Even anger. (laughs) Which can be scary. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because anger is protecting a hurt part. Yeah, exactly. And it might also be protecting period. Right. You know, setting a boundary that just is an important boundary to maintain one's sense of integrity or self. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that story. Your mom sounds awesome that she was able to get it, you know, like after oh those God, years yeah. of conditioning, she's awesome. <laughs> I know. I told her that, like, I, I don't know if many of my friends could experience what I have, which is hearing my mom say, I was wrong and I'm so sorry. And I want to change like, wow. yeah. And it just like any, any, um, any anger that I had just turned into it, feeling the grief of, of time of things that have mm-hmm. happened. And then so much love and appreciation was, was beyond that. And that's, what's real. 
Yes. Oh, that's really, really beautiful. What's your mom's name? Kathy. Mm, Kathy. She's a good girl. (laughs) Yeah, she is. And she's been on her own journey. Like when I started getting into these things, oh, at first it was like, you're taking psychedelics. Like, no, don't drink ayahuasca, please. Like, what is that? And then, and then she saw more headlines. And so it was like, okay, okay, maybe it's all right. Um, And now I think she's proud of what I'm doing. But anyway, it's along my journey. Like I introduced the idea of mindfulness to her and then she was like, wow, what would I, where would I be without mindfulness? And then, and then next it was boundaries. Like, where would I be without boundaries? How did I get through my whole life without knowing this? And wow. so, so we've been learning and growing together and we always have been growing together. Like it's, yeah. I'll have to have her as a guest on the show sometime, I think. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Tell me, I'm definitely going to tune into that one. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. And it really does show that like, okay, for a first phase of life, parents are our teachers, but you know, the second phase of life, and of course it's always mutual, but the second phase of life that it really can be kind of more explicit in the other direction. I never thought my parents would ever drink ayahuasca. I remember saying, I was like crying once like, Oh, so sad. You know, I dedicate my life to this, you know, research and, and yet my family, like they just don't get it. They'll never drink ayahuasca. No, seriously, they'll never drink ayahuasca. (laughs) And I'm not even joking. Less than six months later, both my parents died. Less than six months later. And I'm like lamenting never in this like real dramatic way, you know, like, Oh, it's like, I love being wrong. I love it. Well, most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. Uh, Well, in our remaining moments, would you like to share anything about how men can support women or people who are socialized as women? Like how can they be supported by, uh, yeah, by men? Yeah. You know, it's definitely come up, you know, like just recently there was that article. I can't remember which publication, but they talked about the hundred most influential psychedelic people and gosh yeah the, oh my god I mean, that was embarrassing yeah they took it down right away but I, it, it did still feel a little bit mm, like how did you not see that <laughs> that it was a cartoon graphic of 10 men and 10 white men uh, 10 white men I was hesitant to say that because I wasn't 100% sure that it was 10 white men but yeah white very, passing at least I think yeah yeah definitely lack of diversity in all kinds of ways and, um, you know, and I just finished, uh, I just finished a plant diet where, um, one of the themes was, was healing my relationship with the masculine. And part of that was coming to terms with, uh, what it's like to be, um, uh, a person who identifies as female in this world. And one of the things that came up was that we need to ask, um, people in power including men to, to speak less and to listen more, to ask more questions, to offer help, to creatively come up with solutions, to elevate not just women, but anyone who struggles to find their voice or to access a platform you know, because of, uh, because of where they were born or what they look like when they were born. And so that, um, you know, moving really from this, from this place of what can I do to help to here, let me give you my microphone here. 
let me help you up onto this platform. Or here, let me just listen to what you have to say for longer than what feels comfortable um, so that I can digest it and and um, brainstorm ways to help spread that message, you know, further. And, you know, it was actually was a really beautiful ceremony because there was no resentment, you know, there was no resentment towards um, men uh, or people in positions of power. But it was it was really, really clear that uh, their salvation depends on our salvation and vice versa. Um, so yeah, I just wanted I just guys want to just do a shout out to to men and and others in position of power that, you know, um, we appreciate you. We need you, you need us. And these are some concrete ways that we can start to heal those divides that have occurred, you know, over thousands of years because of all kinds of different reasons. And if anyone doesn't know about the prophecy of the eagle and the condor, it's a very interesting prophecy that talks about the reunification of the eagle people and the condor people. And the condor people represent indigenous people, you know, heart, um, instinct, intuition, Eagle people represent industrial, um, um, you know, intellect, and uh, the prophecy goes: it's about you know South America and and um, taking over territories and obliterating peoples. Talked about you know the condor are at a place now of of um, being willing to share their medicine again with the eagle people who have hurt them, and that they can actually come together and help each other you know, in a good way towards and, and create this unification process. And so I, I just, I love that prophecy. And I don't think it's just around um, the indigenous and the non-indigenous. I think we can apply it for uh, female and uh, male energies, you know, um, and it, it gives us hope. like plant-based healing and like Western medicine-based yes. healing. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love it when we find a new category. Yes. And so it's, it's like kind of a roadmap. It tells us what to do, you know, and, and one of the things that I see here is that the Eagle people, however you want to define them, whether it's the uh, medical model or men or white people need to listen to uh, the condor people and give them opportunities to have their voices heard again and again and again, as long as needed. Yeah. And I, I feel there's like a, a cautionary bit to that, which is like the Eagle people can't just take the condor medicine and use it how they want to like, get it fitting into their paradigm. It's like condor people has to be involved at every step of the way, especially because how it, oh, much, it sure. affects them. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it, that that we've done that long enough. Yeah. You know, it's really time to find a new paradigm for sure. Well, that, we'll leave it there. We're inviting <laughs> a new paradigm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Leah, for creating the time and space for these conversations. It really was a, a sincere pleasure to chat with you. Likewise, Adele. Um, do you want to share where people can follow your work or find you? And I'll put it in the show notes as well. Sure. Um, I think primarily, uh, I have a website, um, www.dradellafrance.com, um, events, but also links to different interviews or publications that people might be interested in. 
Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best go-to spot. Right on. Thank you so much. Thank you, darling. Appreciate it. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com. Thank you.